Thank you, Kathy, so much. And uh, just that word, even as we say church, I want to say something. As we say good morning, church, to remember that every one of you that calls FBC home and you're a part of the body here, you are the church. And so as Kathy says, what steps do we take? Remember, this local gathering on Sunday mornings is not the church alone. This is us coming to worship as one together. And we do want to create open avenues for those that may be away from Christ or far from, that they would feel welcome here. But remember, you're the church when you leave these doors. And so just like Kathy said, you're that to your neighbor when you walk out on the driveway tomorrow, get in the mail. You're that on Wednesdays when you're picking up groceries. So we are the church. We need to remember that it's a who, it's not a what. And so every one of you are already can, should be out at Kathy because you're like, oh, I'm doing that throughout my week. Might as well do that on Sunday mornings. So when we're talking about rising up and building, remember that we collectively are the church. All right, this is vital and crucial as we go forth for the sake of the name. My, my wife and kids kill me every time because what I say is, hey, whenever they go, hey, we're going to church. I'm like, we're not going to church. We're going to service. We're going to go worship. Now, it might be semantics, but sometimes it can play with us that we just remember, no, Sundays is just church. And it's not. Every facet of every part of our lives is church because it's who we are. All right. Thank you, Kathy. That's great. Uh, all right. Now, again, if you haven't noticed, I, I'm not Sam. I'm, I'm pinch hinting again this week, and we need to be praying for Sam as he's continuing to heal uh, from sickness, which I think a lot of us in the body are dealing with, and COVID's going around again more. Um, and so be praying for him uh, and Ruthie as he continues to heal. And so um, we are going to be back in Nehemiah. So if you've been with us and we're going through this series on rising up and building, uh, we're in Nehemiah. And so we're going to be back in Nehemiah chapter 9 today. Let me give you a brief recap of where we've been. We just left off at Nehemiah chapter 8. And remember, the first part of Nehemiah was all about rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Right? Nehemiah had been placed with this burden that he heard from so far away that the people of God were in disarray. Like the city of his fathers was wide open to destruction and had been overtaken. And he was placed with this burden to go back and rebuild it and to lead a people. And so we see the rebuilding of the wall. But also in the last part of Nehemiah, where we are right now, is the restoration of God's people. So first it was rebuilding the wall, but now it's the restoring of God's people. And so in chapter 8, we saw they all of a sudden bring the word back. Ezra the priest stands up and is reading the word of God. People rejoice, and then feasting happens, right? And then the right correction of where they are in the sight of their God. And that's where we come to chapter 9 today. And we will begin there. But first, I need to tell you a little story. So, sixth grade, I am in, so I grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona. I am not from East Texas. And real soon, if you have any conversation with me, you'll know that real quick. But I love East Texas. We are here. Um, but I'm in sixth grade. I'm in Miss Kenobi's class. And something you need to know about me is growing up, I had a real idol of I had to have the approval of others. So maybe you don't know this, but maybe I would have been Don, the class clown. I always was cutting up, getting jokes, trying to make people laugh. Like I would be the first one to do anything. And so I'm sitting in the back of Miss Kenobi's class, and I look over, and uh, one of the girls that I grew up in school with, Emily Factor, is a couple chairs down. And all of a sudden in my brain, I got it timed perfectly where I can make the whole class laugh. And you know this, it's the old slide the chair out at the perfect time. Emily comes to sit down, and I just, I mean, this was like the most perfectly timed pull the chair out ever. I pull it out, and she just falls. Her elbow hits the chair, and, and I just like, oh my gosh. 
realized what I had done. Everybody starts laughing. Emily's crying. Now, what happened in Miss Kenobi's class was if you ever got in trouble, she had this book. You had to write your name in the book, and when you got to three times, you had detention. The minute I saw Emily hit the floor, I ran right to the book and wrote my name in it. Miss Kenobi starts yelling, who did that? Everybody's laughing. And I was like, I already wrote in the book. Now, listen, in that moment, what happened was I knew what I did was wrong. Like I immediately, right? First, I was just concerned about getting people to laugh. The minute I saw Emily get hurt, I was devastated. Like I was like, that was wrong. But now what I didn't realize was it didn't change my behavior. It didn't change anything inside me. I was just like, that's wrong. I need to go put my name in the book so I don't get busted more. It didn't affect, because guess what? The next week, I was doing the same stuff. It didn't actually turn me from anything I was doing. And that's where we're going to be today. We are actually going to see in the Word of God what true repentance looks like, what actual forgiveness, what we're walking in of our sins. And so what we're going to see is since the Lord is a faithful deliverer, we must walk in true repentance of our sins. Let me say that again. So since the Lord is a faithful deliverer, we must walk in true repentance of our sins. So if you read with me, we're going to be in Nehemiah 9, 1 through 6. So Nehemiah 9, 1 through 6. All right, read with me. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kedmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kedmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, Pethiah, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. The host of heaven worships you. This is God's word. Now, I thank you for bearing with me with all the names, and yes, there is someone apparently named Bunny, and so it's okay. We got all kind of good names. Now, Nehemiah chapter 9 is a gift from the Lord. Like this whole chapter is an amazing chapter. And actually outside of the Psalms, it is the longest recorded prayer in all the Bible. Like it is incredible. And it's actually the longest recount of the entire Old Testament in the Old Testament. So if we were to continue past verse 6 through the rest of it, you see from creation all the way to Abraham, to the exodus, to exile, and how God is faithful to his people. It shows us the goodness and mercy of God. It reveals God as a faithful deliverer and a savior of his people amidst their faithlessness. We see the one true holy God who's merciful and just. 
Now, while we're covering just the first six verses today, Sam's going to be back next week, and we're going to be able to look at the rest of the prayer, which is going to be incredible. But in these first six verses, we see the people of God walking in true repentance for their sins against the Lord. And it provides a model and a beautiful picture for you and I of what true repentance looks like and what turning from our sin into our merciful, righteous Savior should be. So coming out of this passage, I have five observations for us, okay? Five observations of what true repentance should look like and how we can walk in it as faithful followers of Christ. So first, uh, true repentance is godly grief, okay? True repentance is godly grief. So if we look back at verse 1 and 2, this is what it says. So it says, now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So what we have here is we're almost a month after the feast, okay? So if we go back to chapter 8, we're now here about three and a half weeks after the feast were being celebrated. And all of a sudden, the temperature in the room has drastically changed, right? They're they're feasting, but then now all of a sudden we come and we see they're fasting and they're in sackcloth and ashes on their head. Now the people were mourning. And they were together, collective, in grief. In verse 2, we actually see that they separated themselves, right, from the rest of the people and confessed their sins and the sins of their fathers before them. The people were walking in repentance. Now, Wayne Grudem defines repentance as this, okay? A, A heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience, Right? Maybe you've heard that before. Of like It's turning from this, but it's also turning to something. But it starts with heartfelt sorrow for sin. The Israelites grieved their sin. And not only that, they grieved the sin of their fathers before them. Generations and generations. This grieved the people. Um, and what they saw, is, as you see through the rest of the chapter 9, it's this constant instances of their fathers and their sin. A constant turning from the Lord. And it grieved them. And they saw their own sin in the same light. The sin was taken seriously, okay? That's an important piece. Because for you and I today, I am not quite sure that we actually have this as our regular view of our sin, all right? So are you brought to such a state at the revelation of your sin that your heart sorrows? Now, um, we don't need hands, but I am going to ask you, How many of us have received a parking ticket or a parking violation or traffic violation of some sort? You can in your heart go, "Mm mm-hmm. Okay. I have received a few, all right? It's been a while, so insurance is good at this point. But what happens when you get a parking ticket? Like if you didn't put enough money in the meter and all of a sudden you come back and you got the ticket on it, you're like, son of a gun. And then you actually will go, okay, I got to pay it. You mark on the ticket, right? Some of it says, I'm guilty, Guilty, have to do it, so you admit what you did was wrong, but you're just mad you had to give up 35 bucks, right? But actually, you're kind of a criminal. You did something wrong. You violated law. Now, in his book, um, uh, What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert, he gives great insight on this illustration. And what he says is, so often we look at our sin like a parking ticket violation and nothing more. Like, yeah, we sinned against God, You know, I I see it. It's a sin. I admit it. But 
surely there's worse things. Like, right, it's not a big deal at all. It's got, I'm more upset by actually what's happening than actual my sin. We see it as a parking ticket, not actually rebellion against the one true creator God who's perfect, holy, and righteous. Yet even that little white lie that you said or that fabrication or maybe just getting angry at your kids and lashing out, do you see that as rebellion against the creator of all? It's not just a parking ticket. So my question for us is, do you grieve over your sin? Like, does it affect you? Not just maybe the consequences of your sin, but your sin itself, right? Because we can be grieved maybe over consequences if we lose out. Like John said earlier, like all sin has collateral damage. And maybe I'm grieved over what's happened because of it, but am I actually grieved of what's happening in my heart? Or are we merely grieved by the loss of something? So when you're found out in your sin and it costs you, is your grief over what was lost in this world? Or is your grief over rebelling against your Father in heaven? So Matthew 5, 4, Jesus tells us this in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Like he's talking about sin there. That blessed are those that mourn over their sinful state, and they will be comforted. A contrite heart will mourn its rebellious state. And when our sin is revealed, there should be godly grief. All right, you hear me? The difference between godly grief and world grief is I'm seeing what I lost in this world, like a child that just had their privilege taken away, and that's what I'm actually upset about, and not the fact that I've rebelled against my father. Do you have godly grief? Next observation, uh, true repentance comes from conviction, right? So true repentance comes from conviction. So in verse 3, it says, And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For a quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Now, this was a long worship service. You know, a quarter of a day, six hours, just getting after the word, reading it. Anybody got any plans till five? We can just sit here and read. Praise God for this word. That's how it started. This is how it starts. It started with the word of God that penetrates hearts. Hebrews 4, 12, 13 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of to whom we must give an account. Do you know the Lord sees all? We might say that, but as we go throughout our day, do we actually live it out and understand it? The Word of God is an amazing penetration tool and a revealing of what's going on in our heart when we're actually in it. Like, how do we know what sin is? We know it because the Lord is revealing it to us through His Word. And the people of God saw this. The Israelites saw this as they were reading the Word. They were convicted and had it rise up in their hearts that they were off and out of step. Now, for you and I, this is where the story begins, right? Is where we're out of step with the Lord. Because every single one of us, every single person created is out of step with God and in need of Him to reveal where we're off. You're born sinful into this world. We're born enemies of God, right? Romans 3 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. And so where does that leave us? 
Well, the Israelites didn't have this yet. They did have the promise of a faithful God and him continuing to rescue his people. But we're on the other side of Christ. And we have 2 Corinthians 5, 21 that tells us, For he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came so that you and I could be made righteous, not by anything we have done, but by everything his perfect life, work, and death brought for us, right? And this is the conviction we see from the word of God is, oh my goodness, I am now rebellious. I'm an enemy of God, and I need a savior. That is found in Christ. And there is difference between conviction and condemnation. And let me say this, because once you have repented and trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you're made new, we might wrestle with condemnation over conviction. We might all of a sudden see, this is wrong, I shouldn't be doing that, and you start pouring guilt and shame upon yourself, and you're actually not turning from that sin to your Savior, you're staying in it and trying to beat it on your own. Anyone ever done that? I know I shouldn't be doing that, I can't be doing that, don't do that again. Your affections need to change. And what happens in Romans 8, 1, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You have been forgiven, so when you sin, you can freely repent of it and turn to your Lord and remember, Jesus, you are my full affection Savior, not this what's pulling away from me. And no longer am I condemned by it, but the only way I'm going to conquer it is by you and your power. That's the difference between conviction and condemnation. And they were showing true conviction. It'll lead you back to the Lord. That is true conviction and true repentance. So third, true repentance is confession. It's confession. So we saw in verse three again. So after they were reading, look at the back half of it. It says, for another quarter of it, of the day, they made confession. They made confession. Now what they did was honest, humble confession, not mere words to change circumstance. Parents in the room should all of a sudden just go, amen, I've been there. When all of a sudden a child gets caught out and all of a sudden I've got to walk in the room and give discipline, the temperature changes in the fact that if a privilege gets taken away, and we talked about this a little bit ago of, oh, now I'm sorry. No, 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 daddy, I'm sorry. Like, don't take that away. I did it. I did it. Like, I don't think that's true confession. I think you're just not wanting TV to be gone for summer. Like, come on. So we actually have honest confession of what's going on. We have to give appropriate confession of where your heart is right? And it might not actually just be the, mod- like the behavior that's happened. What's going on in your heart, right? Because maybe I'm walking in a sin, but it's because I have approval or this comfort idol or power idol in my heart. It's not just the actual thing that's happened. So am I confessing that to the Lord? It's not necessarily a behavior confession, but what caused the behavior. And we're asking the Lord, Lord, search my heart. Show me where I've gone wrong and help me to confess that freely, also, has anybody ever said, yeah, I've sinned, but, right? Like, but this, well, man, that guy was asking for it. Like, that guy that pulled over me in traffic, like, horn's there for a reason. Use it. I got a voice. Like, no, no, no. Don't excuse your sin. That nullifies the cross. Like, like Jesus took it all on the cross, and we can freely confess our sins going, it was all met to Jesus. It was all taken on by him. Um, and we just need to walk in it. I think as the church, I think we don't, and I love that John led us in that this morning, because I just don't think we walk in open confession enough. And we go through our days going, 
all right, I'll just, I'm, I'm muddling through my day, going through, and then all of a sudden, it's maybe been a week or two weeks, and we haven't confessed of anything. Man, if you guys go two weeks without sinning, I need to have lunch with you. Because this is something that we should be walking in at all times. One of my professors at my seminary, uh, TJ Betts, he wrote this in a commentary on this verse. He said, what difference would it make in the lives of believers today if we spent as much time in prayer and confession in response to the preaching and teaching of God's word as the time we actually listen to the preaching of God's word? Like, is our confession time and prayer to the Lord equal to the amount we actually read his word or hear it preached and taught? I don't know. I would have to look at myself and go, I don't know. That's something we should be thinking about. And John already read it for us this morning, but in 1 John 1, 9, we see, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What an amazing promise, church. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He is perfect, righteous, to cleanse you from your unrighteousness. That's a verse that should be in the hip pocket, on the fridge, every moment of every day. Help me to remember this, Father. Help me to remember, if I confess, you are faithful and just to forgive. All right, well, next observation, and that leads right into it, is true repentance is worship. True repentance is worship. So right after, in verse 3, we see that they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So as they confessed their sins, it drove them to worship the Lord their God. In some translations, you'll actually see that it says they made confession and bowed down. The image of bowing down in reverence to the Lord. That's a humbling act, bowing down, right? That's humbling, but it's worshiping God. The word of God convicted and reminded them of who their God is and led them to turn from their sin and to worship him. Have you ever thought of your confession and repentance as, of your sins as worship? Like, have you thought of that as actual worship? It is worship. Repentance is a humbling experience and glorifying to God as you admit your sin before the Almighty and confess where your heart has gone astray. Right? One of my favorite songs to sing is Come Thou Fount. And one of it is, says, I am prone to wonder. Like, Lord, I need you. Like, I know it. I am prone to leave you, the Lord I love. But please, come take my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. Like, that should be our constant. Like, right? The prodigal son in the story of Luke, where the, fa- where the son ran from his father, he was still a son. He was still a son. And when he came home, his father accepted him. And he was able to worship. We need to worship our God and realize that repentance is a gift. Every facet of your life is worship. Do you know that? Like, we're worshipers of Christ. That is what we should be defined as. When people see our lives, they should say, man, that that guy worships Jesus. He doesn't worship the Dallas Cowboys. Now, they won't say that of me because I'm not a Cowboys fan, but it could be Arizona State football. What do we worship? And as we confess and we're turning from those idols that pull us from God and we're turning to the Lord, that is worship. Uh, Martin Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. All of the Christian life is repentance, turning from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners. The gospel is for every day and every moment. 
So repentance and faith, it's continual. It's this constant, yes, we repent when we initially come to Christ, but it should be this everything that we're practicing, repentance and faith, repentance and faith. This is the Christian's posture, and it'll result in constant worship. It will. So do you see repentance as worship? How can you put that actively in your lives? So finally, true repentance leads to God-centered prayer. It leads to God-centered prayer. So if you read with me in verses 5 and 6. So then the Levites, Jeshua, Kedmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pithiah, said, Stand up. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone, you made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Now, verses 5 and 6 are at the beginning of the prayer that we see carried out through the rest of the chapter. And the Levites, so the priests of that day, right, stood up and led the people in prayer. This is not a prayer. Now, what I need to say is they actually stood up, right? So they were down, bowing down. Now they stood up. Now they're going, okay, now we're going to have proper reverence for our God again and speak out to him. And all of a sudden, what we see is what are their first words? You. You. You alone are God. You are the one true from everlasting to everlasting, right? It's not, Lord, I did this. I did this. I'm this. It starts off looking at their father and their creator. Yes, they confessed, but they turned. And they looked and they saw the faithful deliverer who, after their fathers, continually rebelled, right? Jesus brought his people. Well, God the Father, but it's Jesus. Brought his people and they rebelled. And they brought him back and they rebelled. And he brought him back. They saw this and they said, you are our savior. You are God. As you look through the rest of that prayer, you is mentioned like over 50 times. This is a relationship. They're having a conversation with their God. It is God-centered. I think the problem we can have so easily is our prayers become self-centered. It can be all about me. And so when I repent, it's all about me. Oh, Lord, I hope this doesn't happen. I don't have this. Please let this, all this. And I'm so focused on myself. Now, I'm not saying we don't ask for things and we don't talk about ourselves in prayer because the Lord said, listen, you don't have because you do not ask. We come to him with everything. But what is our first realization when we're coming to prayer? Is it about him and the glory and might of his mercy and righteousness? Because that is what's going to turn us from our sin as we look and truly pray to our Lord as we should be. So the Israelites, it didn't begin with a desire for the Lord to bless them or change their circumstance. They were not only asking something of the Lord. After they confess and worship, they turn, they stand, and bless the eternal God. So I ask you, what is the content of your prayers? I mean, when I look at the last year of our life here in FBC, we've talked about prayer a lot. I mean, we have walked in this, and what is it? How do I constantly live in it? What is the content of your prayers, especially after you repent? When you repent, do you rejoice in the goodness and mercy of God? Do you see that more? Um, now, this is one of the things is we're looking at God-centered prayer. When you are caught in sin or you're like, okay, I have this sin that's 
constantly biting at me, trying to get, whether it's lust and, and I'm trying not to give in to the temptation or anger, right? And it's causing me to lash out at people if they say something. And you're just trying to fight that. Well, what is your response? Are you constantly looking at, are you looking at the Lord? There was a pastor once that gave this um, illustration that was, I just thought, incredible, of a guy that was struggling with pornography. And he said, how do I beat this? How do I beat this? And he's saying, well, what if maybe the next time you actually sat down and were about to give in to that temptation, instead you had the mindset and go, Jesus, thank you for forgiving me for what I'm about to do. Would you still do it? Maybe, maybe not, but guess what? Even if you still did, you're still forgiven. But if we have this mindset and this God-centeredness where I'm confessing my sin and it's turning me to the Lord and I'm being reminded by the word of God of who he is, that he alone is the one true God, that he's from everlasting to everlasting, he is faithful and just to forgive, that Jesus took everything for me, that's going to be easier for me to fight and walk in true repentance, not just some behavior modification. I'm walking in the gospel. I'm walking in the goodness of Jesus. So how do you remind yourself in that moment to recount the wonderful deeds of the Lord of who he is after repentance? Ask the Lord to give you new affections, a new object of your affection. Just like David says in Psalm 51, like create in me a clean heart, right? Or Psalm 139, like search me and see if there's any grievous way in me. Lord, please move. Now for those of us, maybe you're here and you've never initially repented. Maybe you're still searching and going, I don't know about the Lord, but I am man, I am needing something. Well, if you have never walked in true repentance, when Jesus first came on the scene, the first thing he said was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if you are seeing the gravity of your sin and that you are apart from the Lord, would you hear the words of Jesus this morning and hear come? Come to me and you are forgiven. Like trust in Jesus, have faith and come to the one that will save you. And for you, Christian, if you're here today, you are already part of the family. You have trusted in Jesus. Are you walking in repentance and faith? Or are you seeing your sins as just a mere parking ticket violation? Like, yeah, I did something wrong, but you're not actually grieving over it and going, Lord, please continue to transform my heart. Show me where these little things are off and show me where my affections are not for you. Guys, in our day and age, it's so easy to worship other things. It is so easy. It is, there's so much going on. There's so much distraction from smartphones to TV to everything that's out there. So what is pulling you from the Lord? Where do we need to repent? Where do we need to come back to Christ? And listen, it's going to happen again, right? Like even if we do it today, you're probably going to have to repent next week or maybe tomorrow. I'm probably going to go home this morning and go, oh my gosh, I got to repent of that but we're modeling. When we're walking in repentance with one another, it's also not strange when someone else points sin out to us, okay? That is huge. If we're not, then it's strange when someone hasn't called someone out in two years and going, what are you doing? But when we're walking in this repentance and faith and people see us modeling that behavior, we can trust in our Savior and fight together against the sin that tries to cling so close. Let us look at the Israelites and learn and walk in true repentance because Y'all, we have a faithful, faithful God who is the one and only deliverer of our souls. Let us worship him today. Let us turn from the stuff that tries to pull us from him and let us worship him and him alone. Will y'all pray with me?
Father, hallowed be your name. Like we pray that you would be set apart and worshiped and revered in every single one of our lives in this room, but our city, Lord, in the city of Longview, as we go out and are the church, would you be set apart and revered in our state and in our country and in our world? And I pray, Lord, I thank you for Nehemiah and the words that you have blessed us with in your word. And I thank you for chapter nine, where we see your people walking in repentance, grieved over their rebellion of you. And I pray that you would help us to do the same. But I also pray, Lord, that we would not sit in our grief, but we would be reminded that, Jesus, you have taken it all. That, yes, we should see the weight of our sin, but yet at the same time, you took all the guilt and shame and everything, our punishment upon the cross. And when you rose from the grave, Lord, you destroyed death, darkness, the sin, and the devil forever. Let us rejoice in that. And as we repent, would we do it freely and realize that repentance is a gift from you? Jesus, we love you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to love you more. We pray all these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen.